and welcome to The Foundation, a Parks People podcast, presented by the National Association of Park Foundations. And now, your host and executive director of the National Association of Park Foundations, Kevin Korenthal. Well, hello, and welcome back to The Foundation, a Parks People podcast. I'm Kevin Korenthal, your host and the executive director of the National Association of Park Foundations, and I am very excited about today's guest. Well, first of all, I got to show you my shirt. The Santa Clarita Park and Recreation Commission was where uh, I got a lot of my uh, early involvement in parks and recreation. I'm pretty sure it's a major reason why the board of directors uh, chose me over the hundreds of other candidates there were for the position of executive director of this organization. I kid you. Um, but uh, one of the people who I think were was most instrumental and is, I think is always instrumental um, when you're serving in a volunteer capacity with a public agency, is that staff director, the person really behind organizing the work of the of the of the commission, um, liais- liaising with the rest of the uh, departments in the agency, and just making it a, a pleasurable and efficient experience. So I want to go ahead and take the opportunity uh, to introduce my former Parks and Recreation con- uh, director. Um, who now is with another organization, which we'll talk about, Rick Gould. Hi, Kevin. How are you? I'm nice doing pretty good. Pretty good. So I always like to begin at the beginning. And the beginning began when your education and life started to take the turn towards a career in parks and recreation. Tell us about that. Well, it, it's kind of an unusual start. After 40 years or so, I, you, when you reflect back on it, you're kind of you're kind of surprised at how you got there. But I actually started as an ocean lifeguard. Uh, I was working in Santa Cruz, California. It was my summer job to work uh, on the beaches. And over a progressive period of time, I uh, promoted, uh, eventually becoming the person responsible for all the beaches and aquatics in Santa Cruz, California. Uh, and that was in the Parks and Recreation Department. So it was sort of a, a, a winding path, if you will, that got me into the profession. Uh, I was exposed, uh, particularly through professional organizations like the California Parks and Rec Society, to a much bigger world than just the beaches and beaches and aquatics. And I was involved in those as well as the obvious day-to-day operations of everything that we did. But uh, I'm not too sure that many people came out of uh, the, the beach lifeguard world into the into the uh, leadership roles that I had in parks and recreation. Ultimately, um, I ended up in Santa Clarita, California. It's interesting. I know. I think you're right. I've talked to a lot of park directors in my role here at NAPF, and none of them were uh, lifeguards. But it makes perfect sense. Um, it's it, that's a for, for, first of all, it's a beautiful job to have. Um, having done a little bit of pool lifeguarding myself, I mean, it's sit around in the sun and you know, watch beautiful people and just have the opportunity to to be out there. You know, outside any job that you can do to be outside is going to be great. I think absolutely, yeah. And being part of emergency services, particularly in California, you know, the lifeguards in California on the beaches, while they've been played up in uh, by Hollywood and things like Baywatch and stuff like that, they truly are part of the emergency services uh, community out here. And I think uh, that gives you a different perspective on how stuff ought to be done, too, and how management, how there are different management styles and how you put a lot of pieces together. And I think aquatics is unusual in the sense that many aquatics operations encompass all facets of uh, operations. It's not just putting on a program or something like that. There are safety implications. There are management implications, your HR implications, uh, just events. the um, yeah, events. Yeah. Events are crazy. Uh, dealing with uh, legal issues like HIPAA, 
uh, and you know medical uh, medical uh, situations for that matter, life and death. And uh, over time, I think aquatics people, and you know, I'm obviously I'm biased, but I think aquatics people are very well equipped to work in the parks and recreation field. So, so you went from lifeguarding at, at the beach, which you know, I, I know lifeguards are in California, especially, are some of the most well-trained people in their profession. How did you get to come to Santa Clarita from there? Well, there's no beach. There's no beach in Santa Clarita. Beach in Santa Clarita. Um, I advanced um, in uh, a couple of different jobs. Uh, one in the city of Santa Cruz, I moved up to what they know what they called the health and safety officer, responsible for unemployment uh, issues, OSHA stuff, all that, and risk management. Uh, and eventually, there was an opportunity to move to the city of Pleasanton, California, as a community services manager. I spent a couple of years there, worked on some very unique projects, including uh, helping to build the golf course. Uh, a very diverse uh, opportunity. and um, But I was encouraged uh, by my mentor in Pleasanton and some others that I had the skills to become a director. Uh, they encouraged me to chase it. Uh, Santa Clarita came around. Uh, my wife has significant Southern California connections. I went to call, uh, university down here. Um, and so I wasn't, you know, strictly a Northern California guy. And when Santa Clarita became available, uh, I took uh, the dive and was ultimately selected um, back around the year 2000. You know, it, so your situation is both unique and not unique. It's unique. It's not unique in the fact that you you worked in a several other parts of the country before you came to ended up being your director role. But also you, you are unique because you stayed there for a very long time and you still you still work within a community, just, you know, a stone's throw away. Right. Um, what, so were there other uh, opportunities you were looking at? How, how again, was Santa Clarita selected for you in your mind? Well, I, a couple of different things. Yeah, I looked at a lot of opportunities. And I and I don't want to say I was fairly selective, but I was selective. I was looking for uh, progressive uh, and opportunistic places to go. At the time, Santa Clarita was just it really fit that bill. And it was something that was very exciting to me. Uh, Santa Clarita at the time was a brand, essentially a brand new city. I think it was only 12 years old uh, years when I came, uh, when I got there. And um, it had just been formed. It was in a place of significant growth, like you see in many areas of the country, Texas, Arizona. Um, and with growth, there is typically money. Um, you have a very financially um, stable environment. And it also uniquely had the opportunity to build in that uh, because of a, a variety of reasons, and I won't tell you the negative side of that, but um, there were significant deficits in terms of facilities, parks, trails, um, and community programming. And so the community wanted that. They, in fact, that's one of the reasons the city was formed was, you know, we don't have what we should have. And so to be able to go to a place where you're basically giving the keys to the Parks and Recreation Kingdom and say, go do it and get it done was um, challenging. The other thing I really liked about Santa Clarita at the time was um, their motto was anti-bureaucratic or non-bureaucratic. They, you know, they did not want um, process and uh, rules to bog down the process. That's not to say they didn't do it, but it was let's get stuff done. Let's not talk about it. Right. And so th there were a lot of really, um, you know, there were incentives, quite frankly, to, to want a job like that. And, uh, and it worked out. Well, and for and for my listeners who are unfamiliar with Santa Clarita, California, it is uh, um, it's a it's northern Los Angeles County. 
It's a city nestled between two major freeways um, that sprawls both flat uh, and hilly areas of its existence and has through acquisition of of space and uh, and other types of legal maneuvers has grown substantially in the footprint that it has. And one of the it's you know considered one of the fastest growing suburban cities in California. It's been on the safest cities list numerous times. And if I were to pound for pound, and I've been through, I've been through facilities all over the country um, for biking and parks, some of the best, you know, off-road trail systems and partnerships. And, and, and it's no easy feat. We have several other agencies that operate in that space, forestry, the county. And um, tell us, talk to us about when you got there at, in 2000, which was a very long time ago. And it was a very different city back then. What did, what did you find when you got there? What were some of the early priorities that you jumped into right. to get your feet wet and get involved? Yeah, let me just, I, I want to just add a little bit to what you just said about the size of Santa Clarita. I, and a lot of people don't realize it, but it's the third largest city in San, in Los Angeles County. Now, only the city of Los Angeles and the city of Long Beach are bigger. Uh, and the metropolitan area of Santa Clarita probably is in the neighborhood, neighborhood of 350,000 people. I think in the city itself, it's about 250. Um, and the other uh, interesting statistic about it is it's massive. Uh, it is probably over 70 square miles right now in size. And, you know, just planning your day, some in some cases, you had to plan 45 minutes to an hour, uh, even without traffic, just to get across the town. So um, it was a challenging location. But what they didn't have, and to answer your question more directly, is there were only seven parks in about 60 square miles when I got there. Um, there were no major facilities uh, like you would think in the parks and recreation world today. And so that was a, an initial challenge. How do we um, get us up to standards, if you will? How many, you know, we should have X number of parks for X number of people and all the metrics that are out there that come from NRPA and those types of things. And so with growth, fortunately, there is, as I indicated before, there is funding. Um, developers are required to uh, dedicate parks. And we work very diligently. Uh, to increase the number of parks, the number of park land. Um, near the end of my time there, we worked extremely hard on acquiring open space and trails. Uh, and we also built some major facilities in that time frame, an aquatic center, uh, uh, community centers, and those types of things. So it was a, it was a, a challenging and very exciting time in many respects. I think the city, when I left, went from seven parks to somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 parks by the time I was gone. Wow. Um, which, you know, I remember one year in particular um, during the budget year going into the city manager and saying, by the way, we're opening seven parks next year and I need 10 employees or whatever the numbers were. But it was seven parks. And that's unheard of. Uh, certainly in that time frame, that was shocking uh, to be able to add at that pace. You know, Santa Clarita is is well known for uh, its recreational capabilities. I think. You know, the tour of California, which is defunct now, was a host. Cal, uh, Santa Clarita was a host city for most of the history of that particular event. What I really, I mean, in addition to uh, just the, the great weather in Southern California, uh, another amenity that I really appreciated was the the paved off road trail system. Um, and some of that is due to geography that just made it the riverbed, uh, allowing for a good, uh, uh, you know, bed for creating trail systems. Other communities here, even here in the Dallas area, they're struggling to try to bring their cells up to the a level even minutely similar in in 
the amount of off, you know, safe off-road trails that are available. Talk to, can you talk us a little bit about how that genesis happened? Because a good bit of that trail system was built while you were the director. A lot of it had to do with the planning that was done um, by the developers in the, in the area, because there was, there was one master developer um, and the city said to the developer early on, you will provide parks, you will provide trails and they will interconnect. And the developer, uh, thankfully, embraced that and saw that as an amenity that um, was, frankly, increasing the property value of what they were trying to sell. So right. it was in their best interest to be able to go ahead and do it. But I think the key to that was having a plan um, and having it overlaid on the map, if you will, that so that when opportunities arose, you could go in and deal with it. And there were many times where people would say, well, you can't put a trail from point A to point B because you don't own the land at sea. And our approach was, well, let's build A and B, and someday C will come along. The middle will come along. And rather than being afraid to um, not do it, we did it. And, and frankly, that created an emphasis to fill the gaps. Um, you, you probably remember, Kevin, during our time there, hearing the word gap closure yeah. a million times, over whether it was a road or a trail. And, and it was actually, to some degree, a strategy. I think the other thing we said was, is you don't have to build it all at once. And, you know, if you have a trail that's going to cost you $10 million uh, and you don't have $10 million, but you got $1 million, then build one-tenth of the trail. And we took that approach that over a 10-year period, we could incrementally get to the place that we wanted to be. So we had to have the the long the long vision in place as well. Now, when, um, so almost a lifetime resident of Santa Clarita until I left for Texas in 2017, joined uh, as an appointed to the Park and Recreation Commission in 2014. And really the, the key project that, uh, that was ongoing and was completed shortly after I left, uh, you know, right right before the pandemic, I think, is when the Canyon County Community Center, which, for again, for those who don't know, Canyon Country is a section of Santa Clarita that, you know, was long in the tooth uh, and had not had a lot of the resources that were given to other parts of that community. Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of that project and some of the solutions to diversity and equity that were solved for that project? Yeah, I... Santa Clarita, when they came together, were four separate communities, as you highlight, and, and Canyon Country was one of them. And they had been there, that community had been in existence, you know, uh, 50, 60 years, whereas some of the newer developments that I was talking about earlier were probably only at most 10 years old at the time that I got there. Um, so there was a disparity, and it appeared that the money was going to the new stuff, even though it was developer money. And so there was an emphasis on trying to make sure that there was some balance throughout the community. And one of the things we did was a Parks and Rec master plan uh, with a with a great design firm uh, out of San Juan Capistrano called the RJM Design Group. And in that master plan, we said the four communities ought to have a community center. And each of those communities should have some place that is central to it, particularly, at, you know, when you think of 65 square miles, that's bigger than the city and county of San Francisco by a lot, you know, by another third. And so having a place in each community where people can go and get services, regardless of what they are, whether they're equity based or if they're recreation based or if they're simply, you know, a place to go and a place to chill um, made a lot of sense to us. We were already we already had a temporary community center in the Newhall community. Um, that was our first significant project. We built that community center in the late 2000s. 
Uh, it became a hub of the community and still is today. Um, you have to almost get out of the way when the kids get out of school because they're just flooding in. The next community we focused on was uh, Canyon Country. And Canyon Country Community Center became a focal point um, for a lot of different reasons. One was is we knew we were going to get the community act uh the community into the facility. We had the same type of demographic as we had a new hall to some degree. Um, we had some um, uh, low income issues in the area. So we knew we needed it. But the other part of it that I thought was fairly significant is the site we has, uh, finally settled on and were able to purchase was the major crossroads in the Canyon Country community. And it was uh, to say dilapidated would be um, being polite. Uh, it was open, arid uh, land that had been um, developed many, many years ago and then fallen into disrepair. Oh, yeah. It had floodplain issues. Um, it had some buildings that uh, were just simply put eyesores, billboards, all kinds of neat stuff. It was. That, we that were was able very, to, at a congested part of yeah, the community as well. Heaviest, heaviest intersection in that part of that community could take you, you know, could take you three or four light cycles to get through there at the end of the day. Um and we had the opportunity to buy this piece of land. And I think it was transformative in that not only did we provide a place for this community center that ultimately got built after I left and you left, um, but it transformed that community's perception of itself in many respects. It's now a, uh, it's not just a community center. There's a large public park that is was designed to host not only uh, park-like settings and perhaps some sports, but also major events. And it has become... Uh, a hub, if you will, in the Canyon Country area, on top of the beautification that that occurred just naturally, it's a it, it's a pretty cool project, and, and and you know really a crown in the the hat of a community that has always taken parks and recreation very seriously and has looked at the landscape and um, but then things come to an end. I leave, and then you end up leaving Santa Clarita. Um, I didn't leave; I retired. Yes. Well, semi-retired because you ended up uh, on a new project. T talk to us about One Arroyo, how that happened and what that is. So um, in my last, I initially, when I first moved to Santa Clarita, I lived in Santa Clarita, but there was an opportunity for me to, and my family to move to Pasadena um, back around uh, 2010. Um, and my wife, as I indicated before, my wife's family is generally from this area. Um, and there was some, you know, school and all those kinds of things come up. And we moved to Pasadena. We live uh, in close proximity to the Rose Bowl. And as things turn out, I happen to get to know uh, the general manager of the Rose Bowl. And the general manager of the Rose Bowl um, was, had embarked on a process in 2017 called the Arroyo Advisory Group. Um, and he said, I hear you're retiring. What are you going to do when you're done? And I said, I don't know. And he said, why don't you come to this meeting? And the rest is history. Uh, I, I should backtrack for a second and say one of the major pieces of work that I did when I was in Santa Clarita was working with land conservancies all throughout Southern California. I was actually the appointed representative to the Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy. And to this day, I remain on a joint powers authority with uh, the, the as the conservancy's representative to the Desert and Mountains Conservation Authority. Um, all that is well focused said. around. Yeah, I, it's it's an alphabet soup. Um, all that is focused around land preservation, um, uh, purchase of open space to prevent development, to facilitate wildlife um, uh, transitions, everything you can think of that's good about um, going out into to the open spaces that we have in the United States. 
So I was sort of uniquely qualified to start working on the Arroyo Advisory Group. I had the background in parks and recreation, but for the last five years, I've been spending a lot of my time buying open space for the city of Santa Clarita. We had a, a designated fund for it that the voters gave us. Uh, we had, by the time I'd left, purchased about 20,000 acres of open space for recreation and, and wildlife purposes. We'd added trails to that. So they were interested in, in my skill set. And for those who don't know, you know, you see the Rose Bowl on TV on New Year's Day, maybe not so much anymore with the college football playoff, but uh, you certainly see the Rose Parade. But surrounding the Rose Bowl is a thousand acres of public parkland. Um, and I, you know, I call the, the Rose Bowl the donut hole and the, the Arroyo Seco around the Rose Bowl, the, the donut. And through a variety of steps, it was the city of Pasadena chose to focus attention on that thousand acres. If you're down in the Arroyo Seco on any given day and you and I have taken this walk, you can be down at the Arroyo Seco, down at the stream bed, and not realize you're in the center of Los Angeles. Right. No, you, you just don't. You can't believe you're in an, uh, a wild environment, um, and you see, you know, the the birds, the everything that's the wildlife that's going on down there. And so the the, the city's intent was to focus uh, new attention on the Arroyo, on the things that needed to be done. They had unfunded projects they wanted to accomplish. They wanted really a new vision uh, for the Arroyo Seco. And uh, I was uh, asked to lead a new foundation. Uh, it's called the One Arroyo Foundation. And the intent of that foundation was initially to uh, raise funding to supplement the city of Pasadena's efforts in the Arroyo Seco. It has grown. And we can talk about that. But um, that's what I'm doing today as a as a consultant, I live on the Arroyo. It's part of my life. I drive through it every day to go to the store. I walk you know, my, my, my furry friend down here, Rebel, um, in the Arroyo almost every morning. Um, and to be able to be, to live in a community, to enhance it um, and to keep the natural beauty of it in such an urban environment and then provide that to all the residents of not just Pasadena, but it's a regional draw for Los Angeles. And my understanding is, you know, though the city of Pasadena is probably the biggest stakeholder involved in this. There's a number of other stake, as there always is in California, uh, stakeholders that had to be brought to the table. I'm just curious, what was your role in getting everybody on the same page or how did that process come to be? Because I know how difficult it can be to get various types of you know landowners to all agree to use a particular asset in one particular way. Well, the easy answer to that or the short version is consensus. Um, you know, you got to build consensus. Before I retired, that process had already begun, uh, and the city, uh, in conjunction with uh, the Rose Bowl, had hired some consultants, um, primarily out of the East Coast, to manage that public side of the process. They had made pretty significant process uh, progress. By the time I got involved, they were starting to get down to uh, more detail, and that's when the consensus fell apart. Uh, because there are certainly those out there who want us to do nothing. There are one of, there are people out there that want us to do everything. And there are people out there that have special interests that say, no, only do that. And so the challenge was, was taking that initial consensus, turning it into a viable project, which we now call the One Arroyo Trail, um, and then designing a trail that met the consensus standards. Is the way I would say that, um, and that's all done through 
um, you know, public processes that are readily available. You see them frequently in the parks and recreation world or planning world, but also through shoe leather, you know, going out to community groups, sitting down with people and saying, no, that we're not going to do that. We're not going to put this edifice in the middle of a natural setting and call it good. We're going to respect the natural setting. We're going to restore or we're going to enhance. And enhance doesn't mean concrete. Enhance means, you know, make sure the trail doesn't erode in a heavy winter like we had last year. So um, that, that it's shoe leather. You know, you go out and you talk to people um, and you tell them what you want to do and you prove it. Um, and we were very fortunate that we had the funding from our board. Um, to be able to hire um, a qualified design firm. We had the book that showed the designs. I call it the book of pretty pictures, but that's what it is. You know, underlying it are the construction documents that tell you how we're going to deal with the erosion or whatever it is. Um, but when somebody can sit and look at something and say, oh, that will make my walk in the morning better, and everybody starts to say the same thing, you get there. And, you know, Southern California is known for a, you know, a fitness lifestyle and, you know, gyms are great and everything, but, you know, really where I think the best time spent improving, you know, your health is being outdoors, this beautiful asset that if you're ever in Southern California, if you can get over um, to where the Rose Bowl is, uh, there's lots of signage in the area to get you direct. I would go out there and it'd be worth a visit, um, even if you have to go a little distance. Um, One Arroyo is also a member of the National Association of Park Foundations, though, with a person as as knowledgeable as Rick is, he probably provides me more direction than I do to him. Um, but I owe a lot of what I know today to the time serving with him and, and through our friendship and our working together. Uh, I also want to encourage everyone out there who's watching the podcast today that you can be a member of the NAPF as well. Your resources go towards helping us create and build park foundations and strengthen park foundations for communities not as well endowed as Pasadena and Santa Clarita are urban communities where there are a lot of stresses on economics. Um, and that's where we're doing most of our work today. But we also have the opportunity to talk to folks like Rick who have had splendid careers, really making a, a, a big difference in parks and recreation. Um, if there's a hall of fame, I'm going to nominate him to it, but I want to thank my guest today, Rick. We've already chewed through our 25 minutes together, but I want to thank Rick for joining us today. And I want to uh, let everyone know again, please, if you are not a member of the NAPF, sign up. Um, and we'll see you on the next fa The Foundation of Parks People podcast. Thanks, Rick. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for tuning into The Foundation of Parks People podcast. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash at the NAPF to not miss an episode. To help this podcast grow, please like, comment, and share with your friends. Have a great day.